How Not to Counsel, Learning from Job's Friends, on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions to the problems that people face. This week on the podcast, I am delighted to have with me Dr. Brad Brandt. He's the pastor of Wheelersburg Baptist Church, and he's been there for 34 years as a pastor. What a faithful testimony that is. He's married to his wife, Sherry. They have two children, and most importantly, possibly three grandchildren. And we're not going to let him talk about that today. He'll go off on that and we'll be over our, our allotment of time. But but Brad, I, I want you to talk to us today, if we can, about how not to counsel. Sometimes we don't think about this as an important issue, but the Bible gives us instruction and even demonstration biblically on so many things that we need to do in, in by way of how we need to approach people in counseling, how we understand them and that sort of thing. But the Bible also gives us some really helpful instruction and demonstration on how not to approach counseling. So as we talk about today's podcast and our topic, talk to us a little bit about the backdrop. What, what does this conversation look like and, and why is it important for us as, as counselors to sometimes even consider how not to counsel from the scripture? Yeah, several years ago, Dale, I was uh, leading our church family through the book of Job on a Wednesday evening series, and I came to chapter 42, verse 7, where the Lord says concerning to Eliphaz that you have not spoken of me what is right. And I remember thinking about that. God said that Eliphaz and his two friends had not spoken of what is right, and he was very angry with them. So I thought, I do a lot of speaking to people. I wonder what God would have to say about the counsel I give. So I backed up into the book and started looking for evidences of things that were not pleasing to God. What were those things he was not pleased with? And I came up with a list of about 15 things that kind of are the backdrop of what we're talking about today. I think that a lot of people are familiar with the story of Job, but a lot of, most people are not familiar with the book of Job. And uh, that's kind of what's also the underpinning of this. All right. Now, now, hold on. You made a statement that a lot of people are familiar with this story about Job. Maybe they've heard a little bit about him, but they're not really that familiar with the book of Job itself. So so why the distinction? Why, why is that part so important? Yeah. Well, the story is basically the narrative of chapters one and two, and then 42, this wonderful man, this righteous man that lost so much. And people know that, even people that know the Bible will know that story probably. But the it's a book. It's 42 chapters. It's poetic. Most of the book is the cycle of the speeches between Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Job, this interaction between them. And that's what God was not pleased with. This, The very type of literature it is, is communicating something. Three cycles of speeches. Eliphaz always goes first. He's the oldest, then Bildad, and then Zophar. And it's, it's a tag team approach to solving Job's problem. And it's like they don't stop. They keep going at him. They've got thoughts and minds about his problems and uh, what they say is a problem. But the book itself communicates this to us. It's, it's not narrative for the most part. It's poetic. And the very structure of it is communicating something about God. And uh, for our purposes, we're talking about the implications for how we help people. And it's interesting when we read this book, they said a lot of things that, you know, on the surface, without us understanding, you know, the first couple of chapters, we might say, man, that was actually 
good. We might think, ah, that's consistent, but there are some problems. Job's friends certainly missed the mark. And how are we to think about the ways in which Job's friends missed the mark in their counsel to Job? Maybe it would be helpful if I just kind of walk through. Here's the list of maybe 15 indicators of a poor biblical counselor. These are some of the things that I discovered just stood out to me. One, they said true things but failed to get all the facts. How often do we do that as biblical counselors? Two, they said there had to be sin when there wasn't. I think this is really interesting. In chapter 8 and uh, verse 4, Bildad is speaking, and he says, If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. As you read that, you're like, what? Bildad is saying, basically, your kids died because of sin in their lives. Well, there's no indication of that in the text. So here's biblical counselors saying that there has to be sin when we know that there wasn't. That wasn't the cause of the, the problems. They preached at Job instead of ministering truth to him. They really didn't listen. They heard words, misunderstood, and ran with them. They were black and white thinkers. They had no room for gray areas. This was a big one. They, they offered good answers, but to the wrong question. Maybe to illustrate, that's in chapter 11, or one example with Zophar, verses 13 to 16. Just think about this, Dale. This, if this was coming from a biblical counselor, Zophar says, If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far from you. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and not fear. That's wonderful counsel for someone who's in belligerent sin. You need to put off your sin and God will bless you. But it is not at all appropriate for this man who's suffering and not because of unrighteousness, we're told. You know, it goes on and on. They had an inadequate view of suffering. They failed to give Job what he needed which was pity, hope. They accused Job's of things he hadn't done. They said true things, but in the wrong context, things that didn't help Job. Eliphaz does that in chapter 22. I won't read it, but he gives this wonder. In fact, if you were doing your Bible reading, you might even star some of the things that they're saying. And these are wonderful statements about God and his greatness, but they completely miss the point of what's going on in Job's life. They don't understand what's happening in Job's life, but they presume they do. Job doesn't understand either, but he's honest about it. Chapter 25, they misuse worm theology. This is a really interesting statement. This is coming from Bildad, and he says, Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? I call that the misuse of worm theology. The correct use would be Isaac Watts, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? When you think about yourself compared to the Creator, it's amazing to think of his great love for us. But Bildad is taking this wonderful truth about God's greatness, and he's crushing Job. He's like a God's, you're like a worm, Job, if you would just acknowledge that life would be better for you. And then this, they keep hounding Job, one right after another, this tag team approach to counseling. Of course, it doesn't help him. Well, and it is interesting to see the contrast to how oftentimes they're saying true things, but they're applying the wrong types of truths in the wrong context. It, it does matter categorically when we're gathering data, how we see this person. First Thessalonians 5, we talk about that passage a lot in biblical counseling where I'm not going to admonish someone who's faint hearted. 
right? We're going to admonish the unruly, the Bible says, or those who are in rebellion, and we're going to encourage the faint-hearted. And this is a piece that's missing here. And listen, this is a great warning for us, because as you mentioned in chapter 42, God was not pleased with the way in which they counseled. And that matters for us. I love the way you framed that question at the beginning, Brad, where you talked about, what about me? How do I counsel? Do I counsel in ways and use words in ways for hurting people that God is pleased with, that's consistent with what he said in his word? And that sort of brings me to another question. What what are some of these implications as we as we look through Job and his friends and how his friends went about this? What are some implications for biblical counselors? I mean, what are some things that we should avoid that, that are very clear here, pitfalls in, in Job? Well, I'm, I'm quite sure if we would have talked to Eliphaz or Bildad or Zophar in the middle of this whole episode, this story, and said, what do you think about the counsel you're giving? They would have said, what are you talking about? We're giving good counsel. They were, as we are, blind often to the, the areas that we're, we need to grow in. I think this is one of the main reasons why ACBC is such a, an important thing. Some of you may be even thinking about certification. The supervision phase of certification is so helpful because you have someone that's giving you feedback into the counsel that you're doing. And how are you coming across? Are you too harsh? These, these friends were basically dispensing truth instead of ministering truth. We can do that. In fact, as I supervise folks, that's a common problem we have. We can do that. So the certification process could be very helpful to us. I think something as practical as every once in a while, just get up out of your counselor's chair and go on the other side of the desk and sit in the counselee's chair and think about what it would be like to be in that chair. Think about what that person is going through as they're pouring out their story to you. I just, I don't want to be like Job's friends and, and uh, often we're the last one to realize that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, you know, the, the spirit in which they were, were describing things was very condemning. You mentioned that about firm theology. I think that's a really good picture. And that is really the spirit of the evil one, not the spirit of Christ, right? Especially for those who know the Lord, right? Is Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And sometimes we may find ourselves sort of in that position where we, we don't want to be too harsh. And, and I agree. I think the supervision phase helps us to have somebody who's sort of watching from the outside. We may know our own intent. As the counselor, but but when somebody's giving us feedback, and and I would just encourage any of you, no matter how seasoned a counselor you are, that, to have people to sit in, and I, I enjoy doing that. Allow people to sit in, observe what I'm doing, ask questions, and I want their feedback. Right? Do you think I communicated the things that I intended to communicate? Did I communicate these things in a way that was kind and gentle and meaningful relative to the scripture? And then have the heart of the children in Proverbs that you you. You're wanting to hear instruction. You have an ear toward that. I think that's really good counsel for all of us and, and, and to be willing to learn through the process at whatever stage we are as counselors, especially those who are, who are new. So Jesus said a, a few things in the New Testament that are really critical. And, and as we think about the book of Job and, and even some of the words that his counselors said, it's always good for us in the Old Testament to have this sort of mentality. Jesus said that the law and prophets and the writings, they all point to him. So how does the the book of Job really point us in the direction of Jesus? Because really that's the end of our counsel, right? And why is that important for us to remember when we're engaging in counseling? This is such an important question because we could think about this topic of today and say, well, then I'm just not going to counsel because I don't want to blow it. 
The book of Job, let me put it this way, we know that God didn't give us the stories in the Old Testament merely as moral examples for how to live. Okay, so the book of Job is not about, okay, just don't do these things or do these things. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets and the writings all look ahead. And basically the book of Job is showing us two truths. One, we may not know God as well as we think. And two, we desperately need a mediator. The book ends with Job interceding for his friends, as God said to Eliphaz, that you and your friends need this intercession, ask Job. And the book of Job ends by pointing ahead that we are like these three friends. We need someone that can come and provide what we could never accomplish on our own. So it all points us to Jesus So even as we look at these friends and we see their shortcomings and we look in the mirror and we see our own shortcomings, we have a mediator. We have one that came. He took our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. Through faith in him, we have a standing with God. And now we have the ability to to live the way God wants. Christ lives through us. So it's just how robust the word of God is. Even this little section of God's word that we may not even think about points us to Christ and shows us his beauty. Well, it's interesting. Even as we're talking, I'm thinking about tons of things and this should breed humility in us all. I mean, we should learn primarily from Job's friends that they didn't know all there was to know. And we as counselors, as much as we can get in data gathering, we need to to speak humbly because we don't always know everything. We're not omniscient. That's certainly true. And that posture of humility as a counselor, I think, is so critical. And his friends, Job's friends, were just as dependent on the revelation of God as what Job needed. And so make sure that we're staying dependent. I I love the way we've shaped this, Brad. I think this is really helpful. And uh, hopefully this will get you as listeners and counselors thinking and cautious that when you give counsel, you do that as unto the fear of the Lord, having in mind what is best for your counselee. So hope you're encouraged today. Hope you're cautious, but you love the word of God and you want to speak truth in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Brad, thank you for this. Oh, it's my joy. And thank you, uh, listeners, for what you're doing to help people. And uh, let's keep looking to Christ and let's keep walking humbly with him as we come alongside hurting people. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. And I'm so thankful for the discussion with Brad today. It's a healthy warning that we need to revisit consistently. For those of us as pastors or laymen who who counsel the word, we need to be cautious. We can have truth that we speak, but in a wrong way. We can have every intention that's that's right, but say things in the wrong way. We've got to be cautious to some of these pitfalls, as Brad mentioned. I'm so grateful that that we can we can examine ourselves and we need to do that consistently to make sure that our counsel is truly the counsel that God gives to a, a particular situation. One of the things that I want to mention, I'm just going to ask this of you as a point of prayer, is coming up in May, the end of May, our pastor's retreat is coming to fruition. This past year at our annual conference, I introduced a new initiative, which was a pastor's and their wives retreat. We understand that many pastors going through what we've been through in the last couple of years, pastoral work is hard anyway, and you add on to it the the many pitfalls and difficulties that we faced in our culture in the last year or two, and it's been a, a compounding mess of issues, and pastors have had really difficult times. We want to focus on the pastor, the pastor's wife, 
as we minister to them. I want you to join us in praying for those pastors as they are selected, as they make application to come to our pastor's retreat. Would you pray for them specifically? We have space for 20 couples, and we want the Lord to use this as a ministry to those couples. It's going to be very one-on-one with some of our seasoned counselors and the pastor and his wife, just encouraging, building up, trying to help them to see the beauty of Scripture, to help them to understand why they feel so weary, why they're not doing well. And so would you join us in praying from now until we get to May? Pray specifically for those pastors, their wives, for all those who will be there who will be counseling intensively. We would appreciate your support in the months leading up. So wanted to bring that to your attention. Now, listen, if you enjoyed today's podcast, there are many more like it on our website, biblicalcounseling.com. Mm-hmm.